Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take those out. I'm kind of surprised there's no Seahawks mug up here today. I wonder why. Hey, it's an honest question, right? There was one here last week, and this week there's not, and so there must be a reason. I'm not going to talk about the reason. That's that's not what I do. I just thought I'd put the question out there for you. Seemed seemed appropriate. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. <laughs> I love you. Uh, so there's two thoughts that I want to set out on the table in front of you that will sort of help us navigate our way through uh, the message that I want to preach for you. And the, the, first, the first one is, uh, if you could take just a minute and turn to your neighbor and, and just say uh, just a sentence of what would it mean for you to say, oh, that was a really lucky day for me? What would it, what would it, would it be? Uh, an experience? Uh, a windfall, a time with a specific person, but at the end of the day, if you had an experience during the day, what would, when you get to the end of the day, what would you, to describe it as, oh, that was a lucky day. So go ahead, take just a few seconds and do that. It's not a hard question to answer once we get going, right? There's lots of things that could happen to us that we would put in that awesome category and like, oh, wow, that was such a lucky day for me. And the other thing that I would, um, I would, I would tell you about one of mine, it would be my wedding day. I just thought that was a fantastic day. <laughs> I remember that day. It was a, it was a, chilly December morning, and it, the, the, there was a little bit of snow that was falling, and, you know, g- guys kind of play, you know, just more tough, but I had been thinking about my wedding day for quite a while, you know, finding the perfect woman and, and getting to that... <laughs> yeah. Getting to that moment was just, it was, you know, a little bit... Um, well, you get a little bit nervous about those things. Maybe more of the just the built-up anxiousness, like I, you know, this is such an exciting day, and and I just remember how the whole day progressed. It it was just a, it was a little bit surreal, right? You remember back those of you who are married to your wedding day when, when you. Uh, stood before the pastor and you made a whole bunch of promises that you had no idea what meant uh, in the long run. And you were just kind of maybe starry-eyed and awestruck, like, wow, this is just a lucky day. I can tell you about one that's like the opposite of that. We were living in another state, <coughs> Illinois, and um, I, I had a little cough there. Um, their Department of Motor Vehicles needs some help. Um, I went for a simple uh, license renewal on my birthday, and 
I got a notice in the mail that I had to actually go to the driver's bureau to have my license renewed. Lisa got a notice in the mail that said, hey, yours will automatically renew. You don't need to do anything else. And she got a little sticker to put on her, and I'm like, what? And I figured it was probably because I wear glasses, and they needed to make sure that my vision was, was good enough. So I showed up there, waited in line two and a half hours, and to get to the window, and the gal at the window says, she hands me uh, like this piece of paper, and she's like, um, yeah, there's computers in the back, and they're all set up for you to take your driver's test. I'm like, what? I'm here to get a renewal. She's like, well, yeah, but you, your renewal requires that you take the written test again. I'm like, why? <laughs> Well, and she did not have an answer. Uh, so we get the manager to come out. And the manager, he says, well, maybe you have a, a driving infraction or something or something that needs to be cleared. And I'm like, my driving record is like spotless. And he looked it up. He's like, you're right. And I'm like, so can you just renew my license? He's like, no, it's in the system that you have to take the written test. I'm like, why? <laughs> and you know what he said? It's your lucky day. <laughs> I said, do you want a second opinion? <clears throat> I would take my wedding day over that day, any day of the year. It was a beautiful day. The other thing that I want to put out there on the table is that throughout history, there have been uh, people who we could say lived ahead of their time, right? So explorers, scientists, those sorts of people who have these um, visions of not, they're not looking at how the world is, but they're, they have this uncanny ability to see how the world could be. Uh, they, they look at current reality uh, and infrastructure and, and so forth, and, and they have this ability to say, you know what, this would be so much better if we had this, and they had, they had this ability to think forward like that and, and help us to get to places. Now, in the moment, people thought that they were just loony, right? Like, you're crazy for thinking those sorts of things. And so uh, they would get ridiculed, they would get picked on, you know, kind of marginalized, like you're just crazy for talking and thinking like that. And so... Uh, we kind of pushed them to the edges because those people weren't always understood. I, I think about you know, one of our favorite movies in our house is the Back to the Future series. And if you remember that series, Marty McFly, he ends up in a time machine and he goes back to the year 1955, right? And so he is somebody who's from the future living in 1955 and and. They thought he was weird, right? Like, because he was talking about things and, and he did that awesome guitar solo at the end and people thought, well, what kind of music is that? That's not, that's not our bebop and what we listen to now. And they thought he was crazy. So the, throughout history, there have been people who have lived ahead of their time. So we have this idea of it's your lucky day and this other idea of living ahead of your time. Now, it seems to me, I've been thinking a lot about this, it seems to me that Christians 
are called to be people ahead of our time. In the teachings of Jesus, we see a different reality than the one that people are currently living in. We're given a picture of his kingdom. Uh, he gives us this picture of a whole new social order. He, uh, he gives us this picture of a world turned upside down and finally made right when Jesus returns and the reign of God is fully inaugurated. And we're called to be people who live that right now. We are called to live into that future that he lays out for us. We're called to align our lives to this new order, to live its priorities, to begin to speak its language. We're, we're called to uh, behave according to a new set of standards. And Jesus doesn't say that, hey, it's all going to be good and everybody's going to accept that. No. What does he say? He says that we should expect resistance. Uh, he says that people might think you're flat out crazy. We might get picked on. We might get teased. We might even be persecuted until Jesus returns. And the dead are raised and the world is set right. Christians are called to be people who live ahead of their time. And the text that I want to look at with you this morning gives us a vision, a picture of this reality, this, this world to come. And so we're going to spend a big chunk of our time in Matthew chapter 5, uh, the first 12 verses. But leading up to that we see Jesus entering into his ministry. Last week, we talked about after he was baptized, he took his place in line with the rest of the sinners. He identified fully with humanity. He was baptized, and then immediately after that, we, we saw that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he went out into the wilderness for preparation, and he was tempted, and we talked all about that last week. And he comes out of that experience uh, stronger, it's a clear picture and vision from the Lord, and he begins his ministry. And he goes about Galilee and, and other places, and his message, his preaching is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, turn, confess. Repent really just means to turn around and go another direction. That's literally what the word repent means. Repent, turn around, go the way that you're not going right now because the kingdom of heaven is near. There's a new world order. There's a new social structure. We're going to live into the future ahead of our time. So he goes out and he preaches this message. And, and in chapter 4, he's, he's out and about, and, and he's doing that, and he's calling people to live into this new reality. And then we get to verse 18 of chapter 4, and it says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. 
And at once they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. That's a pretty compelling word. Hey, come, follow me. Jesus is just strolling along the lake shore and it just kind of seems random. He's, he's like, hey, you, 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 and you, come, follow me. I have a new assignment for you. Instead of fishing for fish, you're going to fish for people. I imagine they scratched their head a little bit, but, you know, they, they're like, wow, there wasn't even a job interview for that one. There, there was, I didn't even have to craft a resume. There was no personality profile. He didn't do any reference checks on us. But he said, come, follow me. I've got work for you to do. And they go. These guys don't know it yet. But they're about to become followers of the God who comes to make the world right. And 2,000 years or so later, We're still talking about them, aren't we? This was their lucky day. They didn't know it yet, but it was their lucky day. Jesus called them from their ordinariness. Garrison Keillor, he talks about, he would say they found themselves in a good story. But you know, it's not just that Jesus said, follow me to people a couple thousand years ago. Jesus still calls ordinary folk like me and you to follow him. That's a, that's a tough command, follow me. It means a lot. It means like we're not following our own way any longer. The agenda that we have for ourselves It's sort of we repent of that. We turn and we go and we follow Jesus instead. He says, follow me wherever I go. He he doesn't qualify, follow me. Follow me when it's convenient. Follow me when it feels good. Follow me when you get everything you want. He says, no, follow me wherever I go. And of course, the me, we can unpack me for a while. We've been singing about the me and who Jesus is. Son of God. All-powerful. And he says, you're going to give up your own agenda to follow me, the true righteous king that God sends as savior of the world. Follow me. I have some responsibilities. We're part of the Washington Pacific District Church of the Nazarene. And so for short, once in a while, you might hear me use the acronym WAPAC. We're the WAPAC District in the Global Church of the Nazarene. And one of the positions that I am privileged to serve in uh, on the district level is that I'm on the board of ministry. And one of our main responsibilities is to interview people who are pursuing uh, licensing to be ministers in the Church of the Nazarene. And so uh, on a local level, we have... Uh, we have several people who are locally licensed to practice ministry in, in our congregation. Um, and then the next level would be a district minister's license, which would be the kind of the affirmation of our whole district of churches. And we do this once a year at our district assembly, which will be coming up in April. Um, but the board of ministry 
interviews these people who have responded to the follow me call of Jesus in their life in such a way that they feel like Jesus is saying, I want you to pursue some sort of vocational ministry. Now, I'll be clear, Jesus calls every single one of us to follow me, and the follow me call is to participate in some sort of ministry in some fashion wherever you are. None of us gets off the hook of not practicing some sort of ministry. Some people, he taps on the shoulder and he says, I want a little bit more. I want you to forsake what, or give up whatever else you have going over here vocationally, and, and I want you to be a, a vocational minister. And I have the responsibility with the rest of the board I'm on to, to talk with these candidates uh, to help hear, listen to their call, shape their theology, um, talk about what it means to be a minister in the Church of the Nazarene. And so at our district assembly, we will, li we will vote on licensing some people for um, a district minister's license and some people who have made it all the way through the process uh, towards ordination. So I tell you that because um, Karen Alexander, I think she slipped out to go downstairs. Um, Somebody, she'll, she'll watch the video, so she'll hear this. Um, she responded to this call a couple years ago. Uh, and so she has been in the process of pursuing uh, being ordained in the Church of the Nazarene. And so she, we licensed her locally as a minister in this church. And she has begun the educational process towards district licensing. And she had her first district license interview yesterday. And I am the first to be able to say publicly that we voted unanimously to grant her her first district license. <clears throat> and that, that means something to all of you. It means that the ministry of this church is effective. It means that the ministry of the church is calling people out of the chairs into ministry. And so it's a celebration point for all of us as a congregation because Karen is one of us and we get to celebrate that. And so when there is formal recognition of that, you will be the first to know and I will invite all of you to fill that place and to cheer for her. Now. It's good news for you, but it's also news that I would say you might want to be nervous about. Because you know what? She oftentimes sat, sits in that second chair in. But you know what? It wouldn't surprise me if maybe it's the fourth row from the back and the third chair in or the seventh row over here and the second chair in. You know, and, and I could go through it. God calls people to follow him all the time. He walks among these rows in the sanctuary, and his call is what? Follow me. Now, does he call everybody to give up their career to pursue a vocational ministry? No, but he does call some. And he might be calling you to help in some capacity around the church or in our community. He might be tapping you on the shoulder to say, you know what? I have some mission work for you to do. It might be that, hey, have you ever considered 
opening your mind to what it would look like if you were a pastor sometime. And if those are ever nudgings or urges that you have, please tell me right away. Because I would love to enter into that conversation with you and to encourage you. Um, I'll I'll be quite frank with what that might look like. But that's okay, because we're all on this journey together, and collectively, we want to say as the church, when Jesus says, follow me, I want to be able to say, yes, we're all in Jesus, we're following. So Jesus was walking along the shores of Galilee. He calls these four guys, at least that we read about, he says, follow me. They, they leave what they have going on, and and they, they follow him. And, and then we get to verse 23 and uh, 24, chapter 4. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So Jesus goes about now with a little bit of an entourage and disciples with him, and he goes about and he he starts acting like the kingdom of God is already there. You know why? Because it is. It's, it's in Jesus. Jesus is the kingdom and representative of him. And those, those who paid it, did you see who paid attention to this? The large crowds from all over, right? But these were people who were, they were oppressed. They were the ones that were shoved out to the margins. They were the ones who were filled with disease, who may be demon-possessed. These were tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and outcasts. And they're all the people that are at the bottom of the social orders. These were the people who were drawn to Jesus, and Jesus received them all. And when Jesus, when he looked out, and there's several times in the Gospels where we just see Jesus looking at those people who are gathered around him. He looks out and he sees the crowd, and it, what does it say? It says he has compassion on them. And he, he sees in their faces the sick, the poor, the overtaxed, the worn out and burned out, the demon-possessed, the addiction-riddled people, all those who need a good word from him the ones who needed to find themselves told into a better story, the ones who were longing to say, oh, that was my lucky day. And they were about to find out. They were about to find out that they didn't know it, but it was their lucky day. And they hear Jesus announce that things are going to change They hear Jesus say that that God has taken notice of them, that that they are loved, that they are valued, that God would make the world right, and that ultimately justice would prevail for them. 
the kingdom of God. The way that Matthew writes it, he tells us this story in time like it happened here, but Matthew also had an audience that he was writing to. Years after this happened, Matthew's looking out at his own congregation and he sees people who are in the same predicament as the crowds that, that Jesus saw. And so he's writing this as a way to encourage them. But if you, if you think about it, it was this message that was Jesus was presenting for a, a particular people. And then Matthew's writing to another congregation. But the word of God comes all the way down to us. And so I can look out and I can see similar things. That we're all broken in some way and we're all in desperate need to be told into a good story. We're all in need of a gracious word from God. And so this story isn't just for these crowds that were gathered. The story comes all the way down through the ages to us. That the kingdom of God is open for business just as much now as it was then when Jesus was walking steps by the Sea of Galilee. Right here, right now, to you, God has come to open a door for you to come to him. And the door hinges on the person of Jesus. And this leads up to the text that I want to read for you. A section of scripture in Matthew, the first major teaching block. And when we say teaching block, there are, there are five major teaching blocks in the gospel of Matthew. And the teaching blocks are all, if you have a, a red letter Bible, the red signifies the words of Jesus. There's five long sections in the gospel of Matthew that are mostly read. And so this would be the, the first of those. And we have labeled it, or we title it, the Sermon on the Mount. And the, the title comes because Chapter 5, verse 1 says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain and he sat down to teach. And so uh, it's called the teaching or the, the sermon that he gave when he went up on, on the mountain. And he sits down to teach, and the disciples are there, and Jesus is primarily teaching his disciples, those who have chosen to follow him. He's teaching them to feed them, to strengthen them, to uh, encourage them in their journey. But the crowds, the people who have been touched by the ministry of Jesus, the people who are curious, like, why are people following this Jesus person around? Why, why are those fishermen following him? They're supposed to be down tending their nets because I want to buy fish this afternoon from them and they're not there. We have a little bit of curiosity. So there's some who are, they've been touched by healing. Some are curious. Maybe some are, ah, I heard him say something that I, I don't know if I trust. Like I'm a little bit skeptical. I, I, I doubt this a little bit. And they're gathered in all around, those who, people who are searching for something. They just want to find their place in the world to understand their existence. And you know what, it's, it's sort of similar. My, my prayer is that, that this would be a place where people who have called on the name of Jesus, who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, you come here and we have moments like this where we open the word of God and we look into it for teaching and for preaching. And, and honestly, it's the, 
the point of, of this moment in our worship service is to, f- to feed God's people, to encourage us, to strengthen us. But there's something that's really powerful about the word of God when it's preached. It draws people in. It breaks down barriers that, that people might be carrying. And so my prayer constantly is that the crowd would just kind of fill in around us. Maybe skeptical, maybe past experience in the church somewhere else where they just felt the presence of the Lord. Whatever it might be, that that people would feel comfortable to come into this place and and just kind of listen in and, huh, that's interesting. That they would be exposed and that the Holy Spirit could enter in and do his work in their life. That's why we do what we do. And you know what? Those, are, those people are people that you can invite. They're the people that you live next door to. They're the people that walk up and down the halls of your schools. They're the people in the cubicles next to you at work. Those are the people that I'd encourage you to invite just to come and hear the word of the Lord. There's something very powerful about that. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he, he, re, he teaches, he starts like this. Chapter 5, verse 3. And you, you may have a, a subtitle or a heading in your scripture. It's called the Beatitudes. And most of the phrases here start with blessed are. And the, the Beatitude label comes from a Latin word for bless. Um, so blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are all blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's how Jesus begins his teaching ministry in the Gospel of, of Matthew. That's how Matthew lays it out for us. He's using what we call performative language. In other words, he speaks words in a way that call things into existence. So there's performative language in the book of Genesis when, we, when we're uh, taught, when 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 the writer talks about how creation came into existence, he spoke a word. Hebrews touches on that. He holds all things together with his powerful word. God has this ability to create things with his words. And so that's performative language. Something happens when God speaks. So we have uh, an example of this right before us. He's speaking this new reality, this future, into existence now. What he doesn't, what, what he says 
If we think about it in our modern context, in societal standards, what he says doesn't make sense at all. It seems turned upside down. It seems backward according to the systems of the world. The, the word that we hear over and over again is blessed. Or you could translate that as fortunate. Or you could say uh, happy. Happy is a good translation of the same word. Happy, favored, blessed. But blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are mourning. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who, who are merciful. Those, those aren't things that are really blessed in our culture. Those, in many cases, are uh, signs of unblessing. Uh, some of, of weakness, of people would question you if you were described in this way. The reality, uh, the reality for the people that Jesus is talking to, when they hear that I am poor, I have poverty in my soul, I, have, I recognize a deep need for God, they may have been mourning uh, loss of loved ones, but they might have been mourning where society was at at the time. They might have looked around and seen all of the oppression and injustice and sin that it had infested itself in their culture, and they might have been in a state of mourning. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how God had set it out to be. And they could be mourning over that. So these people who are sitting there and they're experiencing these sorts of things, they hear, these marginalized people, they hear Jesus say things that just turn their reality upside down. It was their lucky day. Did you notice in those statements there's some consistent verbs, the verb are and will. Blessed are, they will. Jesus is speaking into the present about the future that will be. And he does it in such a way that we can live into the promise of the future right now. This is how we live ahead of our time. Now, many people, teachers, scholars, uh, just folk like us have read these statements before, and we have used them to try and, and set some standards that we need to work really hard to achieve. Like we'll take, take each one. Oh, to get the blessing of God, I really have to be poor in spirit. We take on the burden of trying to do that. Well, I need to be in a constant state of mourning. I need to work really hard at that. I, you go through the list. Have you ever thought about it like that? Like the, if this is what God blesses, then I need to try and become like that. That's a misreading of, of our text. Jesus isn't saying, I want to give you a whole laundry list of things to work really hard to achieve. He's proclaiming blessing for people who already are, who already would put themselves in that list. He doesn't say, try really hard to be poor in spirit and you'll be blessed. 
They're blessed because God has taken on their cause. They are blessed because God has noticed them and reached out to them and spoken a word that, that brings his blessing into existence for them. I want you to hear the simplicity of what Jesus is saying. Hear these words of Jesus for, for what they are, not what we sometimes like to make them out to be or try and twist and, and turn them into just what they are. Just listen for the simplicity. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he talks about hearing the gospel in what he, say, what he calls a primitive way. Stripped of all of the things, all of the layers that we so often bring to the text or we add to the text so that we can try and avoid its meaning, meaning or, or change the meaning into something that is more palatable for us. He said, listen to the words of Jesus clearly because he's, he's speaking them to each of us. He's not adding a burden to you to try and achieve. He's pronouncing the favor of the Lord's blessing over you. He's not giving you an assignment here. He's providing encouragement for these people. The common English Bible, I, I love the simplicity of, of how it lays out these Beatitudes. And I just want to read them to you. The, the common English Bible chooses to translate the word that we read as blessed earlier as, as happy. Happy are people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Less of you means more of God. Happy are people who grieve because they will be made glad. They will be embraced by the one who is most dear to them. Happy are people who are humble because they will inherit the earth. There's contentment in that statement. Happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness because they will be fed until they are full. They will be nourished and given what they need. Happy are people who show mercy because they will receive mercy. Happy are people who have pure hearts because they will see God. Happy are people who make peace because they will be called God's children. Happy are people whose lives are harassed because they are righteous, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Do you hear the simplicity in that? When we strip away all of the layers that we might want to add into that, all of the assignments that we might want to read into that, like, oh, I have to try so much harder to get the blessing of God. No, Jesus doesn't say any of that. He says the blessing is just there. Most of us, when we, when we think about it, when we think about our worldly existence, We've been taught to navigate the waters of life through power, strength, and accomplishment. We work to be rich so we can have what we want. We seek power so we can take what we want. We, we argue to be right so we can have our way. 
We compete to win, so we'll be respected and admired. We want to be beautiful, so we'll be uh, desired and people will like us. And living like that's exhausting, isn't it? It'll wear you out if you're trying to achieve and accomplish all of these things. But we're fooled into thinking is that this is what it means to be blessed. Because if we achieved all those things, you would see a hashtag, I'm blessed, on somebody's Facebook page. You know that that's true. Because we think that we have to earn it or work for it. And that bleeds over when we think about God's grace. Oh, I have to work so much harder because God's just not pleased with me. And Jesus says, no, I see you who are poor in spirit. I know you feel hopeless at the moment. I know you're grieving your situation. I know you're broken. I know you're humble. But you're blessed for it. God sees you. God loves you. God values you. And I will speak those words of blessing into your life. You see, when we, when we think that we have to work for everything, it creates a spiritual block in us. The Holy Spirit is not free to move about our soul when we're constantly trying to work for things. Because we're looking in the wrong place, we're listening to the wrong voices. There's a passage in Revelation chapter 3, I think it's on the, it's on the back of your core guide, one of the discussion points for your groups this week surrounds this passage. But Jesus is talking to a church in Laodicea. And he accuses them of being apathetic, um, lukewarm, spiritually blind. And he goes on to say that they are that way because they have worked for everything. They've, they've tried to achieve everything. They feel like they are rich and blessed. And Jesus says, no, really, you're blind and naked and afraid and all those sorts of things. Revelation 3, 17 to 22. You can take some moments to, to read that this coming week. But it gives us a picture of what we're talking about here. People who try and achieve and work for God's blessing, and when they achieve something and say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm blessed, I have lots of money in the bank, look how good we're doing, God must really be blessing me. What, they, what Jesus is saying is, no, actually, you're, you're, you're looking in the wrong place, and you're actually kind of a lukewarm, apathetic person of faith because you're banking on that. You think you earned all of it, and my blessing is free. My, my grace, you can't earn. It's there. I will pour it out into you. Don't think that it's you who are achieving any of it. Fred Craddock, he says, uh, it is more difficult to hear and receive a blessing than it is to attempt to try and achieve one. He nails that one right on the head because we are taught from when we're really small that we have to work for everything. And so when somebody just gives us something as a blessing, as a gift, as a, as a 
measure of grace, it's really hard to receive that sometimes. Because we don't feel like we're worthy or that we've earned it. And and so it's easier to just put our nose to the grindstone and try and do enough to convince God that he should bless us. And Jesus comes and he turns that totally upside down. Hallelujah. Live into the simplicity of the grace of the words that Jesus speaks to you. Jesus is going around and he starts off by making these good news announcements to people who, whose lives are just flat out broken, for people who realize that they can't fix themselves, for people who can't get out from under the oppression and the burden that the world places on them. This is good news for the people that we talked about in Matthew chapter 4. It's good news for everybody who's gathered here at 1119 West 1st Street in Centralia. The, the good news is that God sees all our brokenness and pain and injustice and disease and he's coming to set it all right. That's the good news. For Jesus to speak these words of blessings was in fact, he was putting those blessings into effect. It's their, it was their lucky day that day. It's your, it could be your lucky day today. See, it's easy to to look out into our world and become cynical. Because we see all sorts of things that we would like to change, but when cynicism settles in, uh, it steals any hope that we might have. Because we begin to look at the world and like, well, I guess I can't do anything about it. It 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 is how it is, and I guess we're just gonna have to deal with it. And so when we let that settle in, it becomes this deeply rooted cynicism and it takes away any measure or picture or vision of hope that we might, that we might have. And, and Jesus comes and he explodes that. The, the words of Jesus invite us into the opposite point of view. He he gives us something to be hopeful in. He gives us a spirit of hopefulness. And we place our hope in Christ, who offered hope to the hopeless. And when we receive these words of hope from Jesus, we can then take those out into the world. We can take those words, we can take the hope that we sense out to the people that we encounter all the time. And we can, we can sneeze the gospel into the world, right? And infect a whole bunch of people with God's grace and mercy and the, the infection of hopefulness. Uh, you'll remember that one. Sneeze the gospel. I didn't even write that one down. (laughs) We can stand in the middle of cynicism and we can be people of God who call out hope because Jesus has spoken that word of hope into our life. And so when we go out there, some people may look at you like, wow, you're kind of weird. They look at me like that all the time and I, I get it, yeah. 
But they might look at you and say, wow, you live differently. You think differently. In this world where it just doesn't seem like hope exists, you have, you have so much hopefulness. Why? Well, I'm living ahead of my time. It's my lucky day. And it could be yours as well. Because God lavishes his grace upon all of us. And to step into a relationship with Christ is simply to repent and turn and go the other way, to confess that we are broken on our own, that we are filled with sin that we don't know what to do with. And Jesus says, bring that to me. I will forgive you. Profess your faith in me. Call on my name as Lord and Savior, and you'll be saved, pure and simple. It could be your lucky day. And the people of God said, amen, amen. amen. I'm